Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, December 3rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPV Think Radio. On today's show, the future of abortion in the state. Then a look at HIV in Mississippi, and a beloved holiday tradition kicks off tonight in Jackson. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Advocates for and against Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban made their arguments before the Supreme Court on Wednesday. Now it's time for interested parties to hurry up and wait as the court mulls a final decision on the matter. Yvette Butler is an assistant professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. She lends us some insight into what abortion in the South may look like after a ruling comes down. I don't think that the court would overrule Roe v. Wade, but I think they would um, potentially remove the viability standard, for example, um, which would be, I think, a lot of a lot of legal scholars think that would be almost as good as overruling Roe v. Wade, except women would still have um, a constitutional right to an abortion. It would the calculus would just look different. Would that vary from state to state? Yes. So it is likely that, say, for example, the Supreme Court said, okay, we're not going to use a viability standard anymore. Um, I think question one is what standard would they even adopt? But yes, I think there would be, we would probably see a variety of states just adopt completely different laws, um, banning abortions at various weeks. Does it ultimately fall on the legislature to make the rules, enact the law, and and determine the specifics? Yes, and I think really what we're going to be watching for is if the court says that a state 
may ban abortions prior to viability, then what is the limiting principle on that? Because in Casey, the court said, you know, when we're talking about regulations as opposed to prohibitions, a court has to consider whether the state is trying to place a substantial obstacle in the way of of the person seeking an abortion. Um, And there are all sorts of factors that go into that. And so I think it will really matter exactly the test the Supreme Court puts forward and that is going to sort of determine what the le- how the legislature decides to draft its laws in the future. Suppose the court overturns Roe v. Wade. The court is made up of conservatives. Uh, several of them are at an age where they can live decades longer. So it looks as though the court will remain conservative for some time to come. Can or would Congress act? Do they have the authority to reinstate Roe v. Wade? There are a couple of ways that Congress can act. So right now, as it stands, Roe v. Wade exists as a a constitutional interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And so the constitutional interpretations are for the judiciary to make. Um, If Congress wanted to pass a law, they would have to act according to, you know, one of its explicit powers in the Constitution. So they, if they could hypothetically look for a way to pass a federal law, or they could try for a constitutional amendment, uh, which is very difficult to do. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about this case and what might happen. We know that the court will not rule until the spring, maybe June. Is there anything that can happen in the, in the meantime? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that sometimes gets lost in all of this is not everybody understands how risky it can be to carry a pregnancy to term. And so just sort of, keeping in mind uh, there like there's been a lot written about health disparities based on both socioeconomic status and race um, and places like Mississippi and around the country have major maternal mortality issues. So I think the latest number is like black women are three to four times as likely to die during childbirth in the United States. Um, So just sort of remembering that there is a lot more to this issue of reproductive justice than just when and how somebody should be able to get an abortion. But, you know, what are we doing to make sure that people are uh, like receive enough sex ed to understand how pregnancy works, like have access to contraceptives to prevent pregnancy um, to have the supports for domestic and sexual violence survivors who um, pregnancy may be used as a way to further victimize them, you know, knowing that people live in poverty and often don't have the money they need to care for themselves or their families as is, and just sort of thinking about all of this as one package of reproductive justice and not just about 
abortion and where is the line of viability and how many weeks should a state be able to ban or regulate abortion. Yvette Butler is an assistant professor of law at the University of Mississippi. Thank you very much for your insight. All right. Thank you. Coming up, a look at HIV in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. This week, health leaders and advocates around the globe marked World AIDS Day. According to the World Health Organization, almost 40 million people throughout the world currently live with HIV, and nearly 700,000 died from HIV-related causes last year. Those numbers are dizzying, so much so that they can feel abstract and impersonal. But here in Mississippi, HIV and AIDS still hit close to home. Dr. James Brock is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This year marks four years since several clusters of unusual infections were reported to the CDC and a new condition was identified. You know, those reports centered in metropolitan areas like New York and San Francisco and really were the focus of a lot of attention at the national level early on in the HIV, you know, the national epidemic. And, you know, Ed Thompson years back wrote an op-ed sort of as a call to arms that Mississippi was going to be hit hard by HIV and that, um, the response was going to be difficult here. This is Ed Thompson, who was the former state health officer? Right. Decades ago, you know, uh, sort of anticipated that it was going to be a big issue in Mississippi. And he was right. Now, uh, about half of new HIV diagnoses occur in the U.S. Southeast, while only about a third of Americans live in the South. And so, you know, the, the South and Mississippi are disproportionately affected by new HIV diagnoses and by late diagnoses. Those are the two main metrics that um, are, are really important to know. Why is it the case that they're predominantly in the South? HIV is not a vacuum. I think that the uh, expected response would be to assume that maybe it's uh, related to lifestyle or something like that, but it's really a reflection of the healthcare system, it's an issue of poverty, it's an issue of access to primary care and preventive services. You know, HIV now uh, is easy to diagnose. The test to diagnose HIV is cheap. HIV is preventable. And uh, what we lack in Mississippi is the infrastructure to be able to address the HIV epidemic. You know, uh, our primary care infrastructure is inadequate. Medicaid non-expansion, of course, uh, adversely impacts our ability to address the HIV epidemic here. You know, stigma is an issue with HIV, period, but stigma, stigmatization of HIV in the South is a, a bigger issue. Yeah, let me, let me stop elsewhere. and talk about that for a little bit. Does stigma prevent people from getting tested or treatment or both? All of the above. You know, and it compounds with 
the stigmatization of LGBT people, men who have sex with men and transgender women are disproportionately affected by HIV. That's probably the you know the single biggest populations that are um, just dramatically uh, affected compared to the general population are. Do you think stigma plays a role as well because being gay in the South is less acceptable than it might be in a more metropolitan area like New York? Oh, for sure. And Mississippi is behind the eight ball as far as making the state a welcoming place for LGBT populations. Things like, um, say, the trans laws that were passed in the last year do nothing to help us um, get people into care. You know, if you're stigmatized uh, from from a legal standpoint, the Church in Mississippi is kind of a double-edged sword. We have some fantastic partners uh, in um, the church who are promoting uh, the importance of HIV screening and health in general. However, um, the stigmatization of LGBT people by uh, the the church is also uh, you know negative as far as um, uh, promoting sexual wellness and people getting screened. As I understand it. Testing is available in Mississippi. There's not a charge for it, and the person who's tested can remain anonymous. It seems that that would cut into the stigma part of it. If a person gets tested, their name's not going to be released, and they can afford it because it's free. So do people not know they can remain anonymous? What do you think is still keeping people from getting tested? Well, uh, you know, that's a complex issue, but uh, access to testing is one issue. If you live in a rural area, uh, you might have to drive to an adjacent county to get free testing if your testing is available at a local health department. At-home testing is not readily available, so you know patients have to go to physical sites to get tested. Um, at-home testing is typically typically requires having to pay out of pocket for a test. It, you know Mississippi is full of small towns, and so if you go to a local testing site, there's you know a concern that you might be seen there and. Uh, disclose that you're seeking HIV testing. It's not readily available for free at any uh, primary care clinic. You know, there are special locations like health department clinics where testing would be done for free. Are there more black men infected with HIV than white men in Mississippi? Other than, we we mentioned the disparity among uh, LGBT people, particularly men of sex with men and transgender women, but the next biggest disparity is uh, racial disparity. And, you know, that's not unique to Mississippi uh, across the country. Um, African-Americans and Hispanic Latinos are disproportionately affected. Um, African-Americans more than any other subpopulation. And um, and that's in all sub-demographics, whether you're talking about young people men of sex with men, uh, hetero men or heterosexual women, um, there's a tremendous uh, racial disparity between whites and African-Americans. And again, that's not a difference in behavior. Uh, that's a health outcome similar to diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and infant mortality. You know, the, the list goes on. What has to happen in order for Mississippi to serve its gay transgender population that is most at risk for contracting HIV AIDS? A comprehensive overhaul would include uh, for, you know, for the population of people with HIV period would include 
Medicaid expansion, a big investment in increasing access to primary care and preventive services, addressing stigma at the um, multiple levels. You know, we mentioned stigmatization of LGBT people, not only in the healthcare system, um, but in the community at large. And, um, you know, policymakers would certainly need to um, reconsider any legislation that might stigmatize people with HIV. Um, the other would be uh, any HIV criminalization laws that are still in the books need to be reversed. And, you know, addressing poverty, addressing the rural problem of, uh, you know, how do we encourage the health and well-being of people that are in rural areas there are three HIV clinics in Jackson that, you know, are focused on HIV. They're Ryan White recipients. And then there are huge pockets of the state that don't have access to HIV care within an hour's drive. Dr. James Brock is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you so much, Dr. Brock. Thank you. Coming up, an absolutely original Mississippi holiday tradition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. One of Mississippi's oldest and quirkiest holiday traditions begins tonight as Belhaven University is set to launch the 89th season of its singing Christmas tree. Tim Walker is the university's director of choral arts. Back in the 1930s, um, it was a dream of its founder, Mignon Cladwell. Um, she had this vision of a female choir um, singing between the two main buildings on our campus, Preston and Fitzhugh. Um, a wooden structure was constructed in the shape of a tree by a campus engineer, and that year they filled it with um, female singers. And she carried on that tradition till um, 1962. By that point, the university had become a, a co-ed um, school. And its next director, um, Henry Ford, decided to add male voices to it. And so since 1962, um, it has been a, a co-ed production um, of Belhaven University and this is our 89th year of this long-standing tradition. Now, this is the oldest, the first and the oldest singing Christmas tree tradition in the United States. So you say she got this idea. She had to be influenced by something. She had put together, from my understanding, she had put together a concert, and then she thought people would really enjoy this outside. And I'm not sure where she got the idea to put it in the form of a tree, but I do know that it was originally planned to be inside and then moved outside in 1933. And I think it had such overwhelming approval that it began the tradition that we know today. And just so people understand, this is a platform so that it does take on the shape of a tree. You have singers way up high, which would be the top of the tree. And then, of course, there are more singers on the bottom because that's the wider part of the tree. Yes. So the tree has taken on a more sturdy construction um, over the years as we have enlarged it to hold up to 100 singers um, and is no longer just a wooden structure but a mostly still um, frame structure with pieces of wood elements in there for people to stand on. And it is covered in greenery now 
full of lights that blink and change uh, to the beats of the music as the evening goes on. In comparison to the very first tree, I believe everyone was just in that wooden frame dressed in white robes um, and holding candles. And so it has taken on quite a transformation over its 89 years. And even this year, um, we're adding new elements to the tree that have not been a part of the tree in years past. The music, is it traditional Christmas music, carols, or do you intersperse with contemporary music? Give us an idea of what people will hear. So this year's um, program will start with a, a candlelight processional, um, which is a variation on Carol of the Bells. It's really nice arrangement of that. And then we'll move into a, a medley of secular carols, so you'll get the same jingle bells and many of your other favorites in that medley. Um, from there, we have chosen this year to make this uh, an interdisciplinary um, production with uh, the dance department and the theater department. So we have a storyteller this year that will begin to tell the story of Christmas. And um, so that's a new element that will be added. And through his storytelling, you will get to experience many of your favorite um, sacred um, Christmas carols, as well as some surprises that we have for you that I don't want to share yet. Um, There's a really neat Mary and Joseph moment this year. So there will be some characters actually as part of this year's um, singing Christmas tree production to offer a, a fluid telling of the Christmas story. Let me just add, as someone who's been to the Singing Christmas Tree a number of times, it's a good idea to bring a quilt or a blanket or sit in a sleeping bag because it does get chilly and you're outside enjoying this music. It does. It looks like we're going to have great weather though this weekend. I looked at the forecast and it looks like we have a high of 75 and oh a low my. in the 50s and very similar on Saturday. So not as cold as some of the previous Christmas trees, and it looks like rain is barely in the forecast. So we're hopeful that we will have no weather issues, and it will just be a delightful evening for our community to come together and enjoy the season of Christmas. Tim Walker is the Director of Choral Arts for Belhaven University. The 89th Belhaven Singing Christmas Tree debuts tonight at 7.30. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.